Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I am really excited about sharing this particular webcast with you. We had a meeting yesterday of the presenters to just talk about the material we wanted to share with you today, and none of us wanted to get off the phone because there was so much to talk about. So I'm really, really personally looking forward to the conversation. You know, it's interesting, after a year of going through pandemic, there's been so much that we've all been grappling with, but I think one of the biggest stories coming out of the past year obviously is everything that people have been dealing with related to education it's the pandemic has just brought a really really unusual spotlight on so many frustrations that parents have with what their kids are dealing with and one of the issues that we want to discuss today and draw people's attention to some of the deeper underlying foundational questions is this issue of kids having to go to the school that the neighborhood is assigned to them. Um, there's a real connection to some much deeper policy history that our presenters today are going to talk about. You know, for me personally, I know, and I share this with a lot of you on the on the call today, it's something that you deal with in your own life. It's so entrenched in our culture that sometimes we don't even question the fact that you have to find a way to live in a good school district for your kids to go to a good school. But do we really have to accept that as a status quo? Well, our speakers today are going to challenge that presumption. They're going to talk a little bit about how we got here historically, which is fascinating. And they're going to present some paths forward for how we can possibly get out of that. So let me talk a little bit about who our presenters are because I'm they're super interesting people and I can't wait for you to meet them. Our first presenter uh, is going to be Tim DeRoche and he is the author of this fantastic book called A Fine Line which talks about educational redlining and he's going to explain a little bit more about what that is. Um, one of the things, one of the more interesting things about Tim is he is has challenged all of us to elevate our Zoom game. Be sure you take a look at the behind him an original um, uh, library card catalog in, in his office, which um, makes me admire him even more. And then secondly, we have Darrell Bradford, who is the executive vice president of a nonprofit called 50 Can. I love the title of this. It's so optimistic and forward-looking and speaks to the idea that we can make a difference. And Darrell's going to be talking about that. A few little backgrounds about him on his on their website, his his colleagues called Darrell the disruptor, and that's what we're going to hear from him about today. Also note that his uh, Twitter bio is a reference to a shared favorite book that he and I have. We were talking and I had this book that refers to his Twitter handle on my shelf behind me. Funny coincidence, really awesome creative guy. And then finally, we're going to hear from Lindsay Burke, who is one of my colleagues. She's the director of the Educational Center, uh, Center for Ed Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And she, along with one, another colleague of ours, Jude Schwalbach, has uh, a brand new paper out. And that link is going to be in the handout for today's panel uh, so that you can read that that looks at all of these redlining issues that we're going to be discussing today. So in order to kick it off, I'm going to first ask Tim if you would talk a little bit and set the stage for us, you wrote the book, 
a fine line. I don't feel like I can hold this up often enough. People really need to get it and read it. Fascinating book. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, what is what is educational redlining and 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 give us a little bit of a context of what the connection between housing policy and ed policy it, policy is. It's just something we we need to surface and have people actually focus on is not something we just have to accept. Sorry about that. Um, first of all, thank you so much to the Heritage Foundation, to Charmaine and Lindsay uh, for having me today. I've been uh, geeking out on these issues for the past five years. And so uh, really appreciate the opportunity to share the work uh, with, with other interested folks. So this all got started when I started thinking about uh, some things that were going on in my own neighborhood. I live about two miles north of downtown Los Angeles. And um, maybe Catherine, you can put up uh, the, the map slide. We can talk through some of the things that we see going on here. All right, can everybody see that? I think so. Uh, yeah, it looks so good. This is a map of my neighborhood in Northeast Los Angeles. Um, uh, and the red school there in the middle is a, is a school called Mount Washington Elementary. Uh, Mount Washington Elementary is a very coveted school. Uh, people work hard to get their kids into that school, a very high performing school. It's up on the hill uh, in an older neighborhood of Los Angeles. Um, and uh, basically what you see is the surrounding schools are much lower performing schools. And this is a pattern that plays out in, in cities across the country, all the all regions of the country where you see very, very disparate forms of achievement, types of achievement um, and patterns of demographics between schools that really serve the same neighborhood. And so when you look at Mount Washington Elementary, their uh, reading proficiency for their kids is up around 75%. They are 60% uh, white and about 85% uh, non-low income, right? Um, and so the surrounding schools, very, very different, right? Uh, I think only one of the schools of these seven surrounding schools has reading proficiency uh, up around 50%, and there are a couple down in the teens. And so what you see is uh, parents in our neighborhood spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time figuring out how to get their kids into Mount Washington. So how do you get your kids into Mount Washington? The short answer is you move within the red dotted line, right? The, the district draws these zones. This, these are not uh, uh, district boundaries. Uh, the boundaries between school districts are typically determined through the political process. Uh, these are lines that are drawn by bureaucrats in the bowels of, of the LA Unified School System. And they draw a line showing who gets privileged access to Mount Washington Elementary and who is kept out. The, because the demand is so high for that school, uh, if you live on one side of the line, you're guaranteed entrance. And if you live on the other side of the line, uh, you are guaranteed that you will not be able to go. All the other schools on this page have attendance zones, but they don't mean anything because uh, LA Unified, like many other urban school districts, is, is suffering from a crisis of under-enrollment. And so if you wanna move your kid to one of these other schools, they are not full but uh, Mount Washington is full. So, you know, what you see also is uh, big, big uh, housing price distortions, right? 
So if you want to live on the right side of that red line, on the inside of that red line, you're going to pay $200,000 more, $250,000 more for an equivalent home. It really distorts the real estate market. And this is something we see in other schools around Los Angeles. Um, so um, about halfway through my research into this, I started thinking, well, this is not the first time that our country has drawn maps in order to determine who is eligible or ineligible to receive valuable government services, right? Uh, Catherine, could you go to the next slide, please? So I'm sure many of you are familiar with these maps. These are the infamous redlining maps that were, driven, that were drawn during the New Deal era by the federal government. These maps were drawn uh, to determine the desirability of neighborhoods. So the yellow and the pink uh areas were the non-desirable areas the blue and the green were the desirable areas you had an easier time getting home loans and housing assistance if you were in the blue and green areas designated by the federal government the red and yellow areas were the the areas of town typically uh with much higher portions of uh proportions of immigrants and uh minorities especially african americans so Let's go to the next page. So what you can see here is our attempt to marry the two maps. And this is one example. This is again from the same, same area of Los Angeles, my neighborhood of Los Angeles. And what you can see is that the redlining map, the colors are from the redlining map from the 1930s. And you can see the dotted area is the attendance zone of Mount Washington Elementary, the coveted school in the neighborhood. And you can see that it pretty much replicates the lays on top of the desirable area from that map from the 1930s and the areas uh, that are yellow and red are still the areas of town where you have higher concentrations of the people of color and immigrants so very very problematic and we've what we found is that this is not this is not com just uh, this is not solely constricted to LA right this this is a problem that uh, a pattern that replicates itself across the country so if we could go to the next page here are two schools in Brooklyn right very same pattern right you see very high uh, percentage of reading proficiency for PS8 very low for PS307 uh, you can see that in this case, the many of the, the kids who are zoned to go to PS 307, the struggling school, actually live closer to PS 8 Robert Fulton. And very strong demographic uh, differences, 20% low income at Robert Fulton, 85% at Daniel Hale Williams. We can go to the next page. So this is Chicago. This is the, the example that I start off with in my book. Um, just wanna say a couple quick words here. This, this one is perhaps the most stark. Uh, Lincoln Elementary is one of the crown jewels of the Chicago Public Schools. This is the north side of Chicago. Um, these both serve the Old Town neighborhood of Chicago. Um, Meneer Elementary is a school, it's a failing school by any measure. Um, in the last time they did testing, I think in 2019, not a single eighth grader tested proficient in, in reading, 99% African-American. And you can see these school, and then Lincoln Elementary is 80% proficiency, 70% white, 
these are very, very stark differences for schools that are almost exactly a mile apart. I want to note, some people just say, well, this is just, there's no way to avoid this, right? That, that the, these lines just, they, they uh, reflect uh, differences in our neighborhoods, in our society, and we can't get away from it. But I look at, in the book, I look at two health clinics, right? One health clinic that is on the north side of North Avenue. So you see that attendance zone boundary there, the uh, checkered pattern is the attendance zone boundary. I look at one health clinic that's on the north side and one that's on the south side. And what you see is that both have patient ratings. If you look on Google, they got patient ratings that are up around 4.5, 4.6. And you can imagine that maybe the health clinic that's on the south side of North Avenue, maybe that one serves a higher percentage of low-income uh, uh, residents. Maybe maybe there's a higher percentage of African-Americans that go to that health clinic on the south side because that's primarily where the African-American re residents live. However, um, they are free, everyone is free to cross North Avenue to attend either one. And so you don't see the stark patterns of differences. And my guess is that the, the demographic differences between those two health clinics would not be anywhere near as stark as the, as the two schools which are divided by this line that is drawn by the Chicago Public Schools. Chicago Public Schools is actually obligated by state civil right law in Illinois to uh, redraw the lines to address, uh, you know, to basically avoid segregation of, of the races and the classes. And they just have failed to do that and, and no one has held them accountable. So just want to make the note that, that this is a very unusual way to determine who is eligible for a government service. And so uh, I think uh, we're gonna talk about some ways that we might be able to move away from this system. Wow, thank you so much for that, Tim. It's just, when I hear you talk about this, it just makes me, it gets me really energized because it's like peeling back and looking at something that we've all lived with all of our lives, but understanding now that there's, there's real deep history behind it. And you used the word privileged in terms of the kids being able to get into those good schools. And I think that's really interesting because we have a lot of conversation about privilege in our culture today, but we're, we're not bringing that across and really shining that focus on the fact that this neighborhood system of school assignment is, is, is a form of privilege. <clears throat> and there's a real question of justice and fairness for families who feel trapped and feel that they have no way to get their kids into better schools and out of their failing neighborhood schools. So um, that was a great setup. I wanna bring Darrell in. Darrell, you were recently featured in a video that looked at this connection between federal redlining policies and education access. And one of the things that I found really interesting about some things that you've written is you've, you've posted a picture online of the home that you grew up in, in inner city Baltimore, which is right down the road from me. Um, and you went though from inner city Baltimore to graduating from UPenn. So you're a big believer in pathways that education can provide for kids. Um, but talk to us a little bit about how you think um, that system is, is corrupted right now and, and what, what we need to be doing to address it. Yeah, so uh, I'd like to thank the Heritage Foundation and thank you, Dr. Yost, for having me here today. Um, I'd also like to thank Tim for writing his book so I can do a cool video about what's in the book. 
Um, but it's a great read for anybody who is uh, watching. I, I, I urge you to, to check it out. So, you know, when you're when you're a kid, there are conversations that go on all around you and they're sort of like meaningless and they don't drop into context until much later in your life. And so one of the earliest conversations I can remember my mother was my mother and my grandmother at the kitchen table talking about whose address we were gonna use so I could go to the middle school in the, the Mount Royal uh, part of, it's called Mount Royal and the Bolton Hill part of, uh, of Baltimore um, uh, instead of um, Harlem Park, which was the, the middle school I was zoned for, which is in the Sandtown part of, of Baltimore, which is actually the school that Michelle Ree first uh, taught at for, for whatever reason that is. Um, and so, uh, the only school I ever went to that was the school I was zoned for was the first one. Um, I had an aunt who taught in the Baltimore City Public School System, so I got this like incredible leg up getting into all these schools that I never would, would have um, gone to. And I didn't think that was strange until, again, like much later in life when, um, when I sort of woke up to the fact that there are four ways that people sort of navigate schools and, that, and, and kind of navigate school choice. You know, you are, uh, you are lucky, like me, you have, you know, like a, an aunt or you get a scholarship, you go to a, an independent school as I, as I did in, in the end, for which I'm uh, sort of eternally grateful. Um, you know, you're rich, so you load yourself up on the right mortgage, you pay for tuition, you do, you know, any of those things. You're connected, right? So you know somebody, you basically work in the influence market, um, which is something that Joel Klein talked about when he took over the New York City Public Schools, for instance. There was an office that specifically just made sure that connected people got their kids into the school, into the public schools that they wanted to get them in, right? Um, or you lie, which is the most sort of conventional and maybe widely used form of school choice. You tell people you live someplace that you don't live, you go to a school that you don't normally go to, and you can go to jail for that, you know? Um, and so it wasn't until uh, sort of much later in life working on education policy and these other things that I realized that you know one of the schools I went to was in the Roland Park section of, uh, of Baltimore, which is like a wonderful uh, sort of leafy uh, designed community by uh, Frederick Olmsted, right? Who who designed um, uh, Central Park, but who was also one of the chief architects of like of redlining and housing segregation <laughs> policy, which I didn't know again until like much later in life. Um, and uh, he, you know, he and uh, the folks that he worked with were you know sort of pioneered restrictive covenants, right? Which are like highly local lease and lease arrangements that meant some people could move to a place and some people couldn't. And in the case of Roland Park. Um, and there was a, uh, an exhibit about this in Maryland recently. Um, you know, the the the, the letters from the plant, from the from the person who's running the Roland Park Corporation say, "How do we structure this so that African Americans and Jewish people cannot move to Roland Park?" Right. So, so the um, so all of that grows out of you know um, policy that that started in the New Deal. Um, with uh, uh, with the homeowners loan uh, corporation and the, and the Roosevelt administration that basically you know one color coded America as Tim showed in his maps um, and two decided who like that it would finance the you know housing purchases of some people mainly white people and wouldn't uh, 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 finance those purchases for other people you know those being largely people of color new immigrants and and a bunch of other stuff and there are there are other policies that that live in that um that i'm sure uh, uh dr burke will will talk about as well um but it's frustrating because like like now being an adult right like now knowing that um at every stage of the process i was basically you know breaking this rule 
of, of you know, race at school assignment in a lot of respects. Um, everything that lives on top of that, most specifically school finance, that is anchored in property wealth, right? And the deleterious effect that these boundaries and federal policy on mortgages and all this other stuff had on people's housing wealth and by you know virtue of that, their ability to finance their schools, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's just awful <laughs> like when you, when you sort of add it all up. So um, I, I, for one, am sort of excited about the fact that this conversation has, has spilled over into the public mind, whether or not you care about sort of undoing you know, racial injustice or whether or not you believe that, you know, your zip code shouldn't be the thing that determines where you go to school. Um, I think there's a, a unique opportunity to, to merge these two approaches, um, although there are all other approaches as well, into a solution that works well for, for all Americans of all income levels and in all different places. So thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for that, Darrell. That's that's so fascinating. And and you're teeing it up exactly to the question that is that I very much want to ask and I think is on everyone's minds. You know, anytime I, I've been doing public policy a really long time. And I think one of the things that's more frustrating for a lot of us is the uh, dichotomy that you seem to always have in issues, right? And and the polarization has been increasing so much over the years. And so it's really unusual to find an issue where there's these really cross-cutting alignments, right? And this one just, it, it, it busts up so many preconceptions that people have of where conservatives might be, where liberals might be. Totally and agree. honestly, it is the liberal teacher use unions who are very carefully guarding this system, right? Um, but so many of the values that they've advocated over the years run exactly counter to this kind of a system. And so I want to ask the super hard question of, and I'm hoping that you guys will chime in on this when we come back around to throwing it open to a larger discussion, but Lindsey Burke, come join us. Turn your camera on, and I'm going to throw this one right at you. What? How do we? How do we bust these paradigms and make a difference, and uh, and and change these policies? Yeah. Well, thank you, Charmaine. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. Thanks especially to Tim and to Jarrell for joining us. So I think both Tim and Jarrell started to get into the historical aspect of this. How did we get to where we are today? And as Darrell pointed out, there were official practices historically pertaining to zoning and mortgage lending, and along with what Darrell pointed out, restrictive covenants at the local levels. And these really impacted the shape of neighborhoods across America. And the effect of those practices, as Tim showed us, was illustrated through these redlining maps that were created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation and then really advanced by the Federal Housing Administration a few years later. So just a, a quick history to, to dive a little bit deeper. In 1933, the Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt administration established the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which purchased mortgages that were at risk of foreclosure, largely due to the Great Depression. And then that was important because for the first time, that actually provided low interest loans with 15-year repayment schedules, which wasn't the case prior to the HOLC's establishment. But as Tim pointed out, once established, the HOLC made these color-coded maps of the majority. I think it was 239 uh, neighborhoods across the country. And those maps, like he showed, denoted desirable areas 
in blue and green, and then these hazardous or declining areas in red or yellow. And it's interesting to, to follow the scholarly debate about around the impact of these maps today because it is it is ongoing. Uh, what impact did they have and what direction did the impact go? So some scholars will argue that the HOLC maps, rather than being the genesis of this discriminatory lending policies, these policies instead really reflected uh, existing local practices that were in place. But either way, those maps reinforced that racial segregation in the housing sector, really codified those boundaries that were already in place, it codified those restrictive covenants that were in place that had been developed by homeowners loan, or I'm sorry, homeowners associations and others. And so uh, we can really see the impact illustrated through those maps. Um, the other aspect, I think, of this scholarly debate is that the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, that was established just a year later in 1934, that really had more of an impact, did more to reinforce racial housing segregation than the HOLC did. And we can see this through something known as the underwriting manual that the FHA developed when it was established. And what that manual did was it created these uniform underwriting standards and it distributed those manuals to every FHA underwriter across the country. And, you know, it is fair, right, for someone, an entity that is providing home loans to have some standards. But if you read what these standards were, they go far beyond just your basic um, evaluation of how sound a home might be, for example, which was included in the underwriting manual. Things like the architectural attractiveness, that was included as well. That makes sense. Resistance to elements. That makes sense. However, that manual also included incredibly nefarious underwriting standards, such as whether there were, quote, incompatible racial and social groups present in a neighborhood. Reminder, <laughs> these were government documents that were published with this language in them. And so how does this connect to the broader conversation? How does this impact education policy? Well, that underwriting manual made explicit the link between housing and schooling in that manual. Let me just read you one quote. It states, quote, if the children of people living in a desirable area are compelled to attend school where the majority or a considerable number of pupils represent a far lower level of society or an incompatible racial element, the neighborhood under consideration will prove far less stable and desirable than if this condition did not exist, end quote. So there was an explicit connection there between your neighborhood and your school uh, in that underwriting manual. So in the 1960s, we see the federal government step in, we see Congress step in, introduce bills to prohibit uh, in particular, school districts from drawing the types of attendance zone boundaries that Tim described, but drawing them in such a way that would perpetuate racial imbalance. So the federal government steps in and says, you can no longer do this as a school district if you're drawing those boundaries to uh, perpetuate this racial imbalance. But even though they did that, it didn't do anything, of course, and this is a point Richard Rothstein makes, to reverse the patterns that had already become deeply embedded within those school districts. And so this is why today we still feel those ripple effects in education. 
there is a strong link too often. If you read Tim's book, which I commend to you, you will see this clearly. There is a strong link between those 1930s era redlining maps and the attendance zone boundaries that are still in place in school districts today, those boundaries within their borders that they draw. And this is why I think it's a big part of the reason why unevenness in educational opportunity persists. It is because schooling is tied to housing. 71% of students attend a school that is assigned to them based on where their home is located. So I, I will say, and then I'll, I'll uh, hand it back to Charmaine, that there is a specific remedy uh, for this problem that persists, and that is eliminating attendance zone boundaries within districts, allowing students to attend any public school within their district. And then of course, marrying that policy with broader private school choice options as well. Lindsay, just a micro question. I mean, looking at Tim's uh, phenomenal charts, it, it really, the squiggly lines make me think of political gerrymandering. Is this educational gerrymandering? Yeah, I, I think one could certainly put it that way. I think that's a very apt description. Yeah. So um, we've got a great audience with us today, and we want to make this as dynamic and interactive as we possibly can. So for those of you who are online with us, please go to your link over on the side where you can put questions. And Lindsay's going to look through those for us, and we're going to keep talking while we uh, while we offer you all the opportunity to um, to ask questions. You know, Tim, you mentioned. I mean, you live in LA. It's notorious, notorious for being a very difficult place to buy into. Um, so, what, what, how would you respond to somebody who says, you know, anytime you go in and break up long-standing methods of doing things, you you run into a problem of of stakeholders who who bought in under the previous system. So you went in, you you paid a premium for a house in a neighborhood and these pesky people come around and say, hey, it's not fair, we're, we're not gonna do things that way anymore. And then all of a sudden that house doesn't have the same kind of value. What's what's your response to that? Yeah, I think, I, I think that's a very valid concern. And I, I think um, my book, um, I, I don't wanna shame any parents for any uh, reaction to the current system, right? There are scarce seats in uh, the best public schools, right? They are scarce. And as Darrell pointed out, there are several different ways that folks uh, try to get their kids access to the best public education possible. And so uh, there are folks who buy into an attendance zone, who folks who buy into a school district, a suburban school district that has uh, very high levels of performance. There are folks that work the system, right? And and use consultants to uh, find alternative ways, like Darrell described. There are, there are alternative ways of getting your kids into schools that that your that your kid that may not be uh, the assigned school. People lie about their address, right? It's something that you know. In talking to folks at dinner parties and and cocktail parties over the past five years, everyone either has lied about their address or their parents lied about their address or their friend lied about their address. And this is up and down the economic spectrum. This is not something um, that is, you know, only low income people do or only high income people do. Everyone, it, it's, a, it's, it's part of the American fabric, right? So I don't want to shame anybody. And I, and I can understand folks who are protective of their property values, but I'm, 
I'm very concerned of just about the effect on the social compact that these policies have, right? People always ask me, well, you think you're gonna, you're gonna switch those kids to the school a mile down the road and suddenly those kids who aren't proficient in reading, suddenly they're gonna be proficient in reading. Well, no, th those things don't change overnight. I, I do think they would probably be better if all of our most struggling students were, were concentrated in a handful of schools. I don't think that's the best way to do it. But even more important than the educational attainment is, is just the effect on the social compact, right? These folks live within walking distance of good public schools and they are tax-paying constituents of the district. They are paying for the, the 12 and 15 million and $20 million renovations of these schools. And yet they can't walk over to that school and enroll their kid. Um, it's just very troubling. And, and I think what I've found, Charmaine, is that uh, liberal-minded folks, right, who don't have kids, when I tell them about this system, um, um, they are appalled, right? Um, then when they have kids, they, they utilize this system. Many of them buy into one of these zones. They've got BLM signs out front, but they're like, no, 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 don't take away my zones. They, they do not want to talk to me if they've got kids in elementary school or middle school. But what I've also found is that around the time their youngest child, right, is a junior in high school, suddenly they're, they're willing to have conversations with me and say, yeah, this probably isn't the way we should do it, right? This isn't the way I want my kids to be having to access a good public education, right? It, you know, we just, we don't, we don't want to tie uh, these two important pillars of our lives together, like housing and education. Now that doesn't mean proximity doesn't matter. Like I, I have two young kids, finding a school close to us um, that we, that we think is good for our kids, like proximity to our house matters a tremendous amount. I just don't think we can draw maps that say, hey, these people are eligible to go to the school and these are not. Uh, I just think it's very damaging to the social compact. And I, I think prop, we don't wanna drive up property values, right? The federal government over the past 15 years, maybe even longer, has been pursuing policies that drive up the value of homes. That's not what we want as a society. We want, we want housing to be affordable for young families, right? And so I can understand any given person. I mean, I have concerns about my property value. I'm obviously happier when my home is rising as a higher uh, value, but that's not what we want as a society overall. Overall, we want housing to be inexpensive. We don't want to be distorting it um, um, to drive up prices and to make it harder for our kids to buy houses in the future. I don't think that's what we want. Yeah, no, that's those so many, so many good points. I have I have five kids, so I've lived this for a very long period of time and seen a lot of different things happen. You know, there's a lot of ramifications of it too. I, I know of of one kid, for example, who lost an entire years of sports eligibility because the family moved. Uh they didn't want to fess up to it because it would be damaging to the kid's career and they got discovered. And I mean it was just it was just this mess of a chain of events that was all all happened because of these 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 boundaries that um, that couldn't couldn't be worked around. So given that that is the system um, and it has all these ramifications, Darrell, I'm going to go back to where I started with 50 can. I love the optimism of can. Why? Why do you why do you think we can make a difference? Talk, talk to me about that and and what are what are the barriers that 
when you get up in the morning and you're like, okay, I'm going to go make a difference and crack this system, what are the barriers that you're targeting? Well, I mean, I love windmills, so that's part of it. Um, <laughs> and I, I think, you know, just to, just to, to Tim's point, you know, like renters suffer this as well, right? Because like, even if you don't own a house, if you move to an apartment that's near a desired school, you you pay for it in the same fashion. So the the the, the problem is not merely one that is passed on to to home uh, to homeowners. So just like a, a couple of things. The first thing I just want to say, and maybe we talk about some more later, but um, one issue I, I think is that like we're just locked in this awful paradigm right now, um, and it is a paradigm of scarcity, and it is one that pits. Uh, two groups of people who are both getting played against one another, right? So, so on the one hand, there are uh, at the risk of being flipped, you know, my people who are we're like we're zoned into the into these bad places, um, and historically uh, have not had our housing wealth appreciate uh, in in a way that um, that folks who are not zoned to these places have, and and that does have a a, a, a profound effect. And we also don't have a lot of choice, right? So, uh, uh, Dr. Yost, to your point, like uh, uh, if you if you grew up in, you know, like in, in newer twenty years ago, um, you know, you ha you went to the monopoly, right? And and the the teachers union had a uh, uh, a stranglehold over everything that went on there. And and if you got into the, I think it was Ann Street School, was that it, the one? That was the one that all the politicians sent their kids to. And if you went to science or arts, right, you you got a good education because they were the selective schools, right? So so that is the experience on on one side, and that is an awful experience, right? That is grounded in in residential assignment. On the other side, you have you know uh, young families, which who are, to Tim's point, who are almost never in this discussion, um, and and you have families who have made a bet on a on a house for school they think they want before they even have a kid, right? And so, that, I mean, this is like, <laughs> this is like the random of random. Like, I would not take those odds. Um, and, uh, and, and so they too are locked into um, uh, a paradigm around residential assignment that is not optimal, right? It is, it is expensive and it is uncertain. And both of these groups have an interest in not having where you go to school be tied to where, where you live. So, so I, I just want to, Put that out there because I, I think the 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 solving of this problem is it's two different problems with the same root for very different groups of people. So I, I want to put that out there. The other thing, yeah. I just, the other thing I just want to say is like I'm like a little bit hopeful about this for two reasons. Like one is that we actually know it is possible to make great schools without tying them to where you live. There, that like anybody anybody heard of Exeter? Right? You, you don't have like you have to go there to live, right? So, like, like private schools know, know how to do this, right? Charter schools know how to do this. Like, you know, uh, uh, selective magnets or theme schools, they know how to do this. It, it is it is not like we don't have the engines of school creation and governance that can help us make great schools without regard to attendance zones. So that's a good thing, right? It, it's not like we have to invent the, the device to do this. The other thing I think, and just to be like, very very pointed about it um i'm i'm like like excited sounds awful but but i am enthused about the fact that there are millions of americans who who are in the um i bought the right house paradigm who realized this year after this year that they have no control over what goes on at their local schools 
Um, and like, I don't know if you're on team reopen or team not reopen or, or whatever, but I know there are lots of people who are like, yo, I'm, I'm giving up my whole life to live in this house and I can't send my kid down the street to school anymore. The, the terms of the deal had changed. Like, like when did that happen? No, no one consulted me, you know? Um, and I, I think there's an opportunity to sort of engage lots of people in this discussion about like not marrying school and address it, who thought that they weren't, who thought they bought their way out of the problem, um, who have now found out that they just had a little more cushion against the problem than, uh, than other folks do. Yeah, no, those are such those are such good points. I in our we've got about five minutes left, and we've got two questions that are very similar, and I want to marry them together, and toss this to you, Lindsay, because this is an area of your expertise, which is looking at the uh, technical structure of what a different way of funding schools would look like. One of our attendees is asking about, you know, how do you bring accountability to public schools, and perhaps take that money and allow private schools to compete for it. Um, another person is asking about Education Hope Scholarships. And so there's a couple of different ideas coming from our attendees about asking what structural kinds of changes might look like. And I, I know, <laughs> since you and I've talked about this a fair amount, that this is part of your expertise. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what structural change might look like. Yeah, thanks, Charmaine. So those are quite great questions. And you know, I think that's really the heart of the problem overall, right, is fundamentally how we finance K-12 education. We fund systems, right? This is the whole discussion we're having today is because we fund a system and then we assign kids to that system with no regard for fit, safety, the aspirations of the child or the family, the values that the family might hold and the alignment or misalignment that might come with assigning a kid to a particular school. And so everything that we're talking about today, in addition to the historic aspects of housing redlining, is a function of the fact that we fund systems rather than students. And so if we want to break this system open and provide for robust choice, robust competition for myriad options that pop up to meet the needs of kids across the country, we have to shift the way that we finance K-12 education. And you know, I've long believed in the way Milton Friedman described it all the way back in 1955, that just because we publicly finance education does not require government schooling and government delivery of that education. And so Friedman had said, yes, of course, let's publicly finance education, but let's separate the delivery of education from its financing, separate the services from how we pay for it. So public financing, but allow families to take that money not only to any public school of choice, but any private option of choice. And, you know, Charmaine, you know this well, because we've been talking about it over the past few days, but literally in the past two weeks, we have seen yet another enormous explosion in school choice growth across the country, which has just been phenomenal to see. West Virginia, a week and a half ago, has now signed into law a completely universal education savings account. Nearly every child in the state in West Virginia, if they want it, will now have access to their share of the public per pupil dollars that are spent on them in their assigned public school. And they can then take that money to whatever education option is the right fit for them, private or otherwise, in the form of an ESA. Kentucky followed suit uh, less than 24 hours later, not universal, but a really excellent ESA option that's in place. And right now, as we sit here, there are 30 
state legislatures that are considering some form of private school choice, partly in response, I think, to COVID and this lack of education continuity for children. But I do think even more broadly, just in, in recognition of the fact that funding children rather than systems is the way to go. And look, I'll, I'll stop with this. We would not be, as a country, unique in moving in this direction. This is something Sweden did decades ago, right? And it works beautifully for them. Um, so we see it across the world. Uh, we're seeing it in states across the country. So I am uh, just as optimistic, maybe, as Jarrell uh, and, you know, the, the name of his organization. <laughs> but I do think it is possible moving forward, hopefully 10 years from now, we'll be in a position where we have fundamentally reconsidered how we finance K-12 education and we're funding every single child day one from kindergarten forward with an ESA. So we have only one minute left, but we have so many good questions that I really wanna to get to. There's one here that I think is a hard a hard question. And so I'm, I'm gonna do uh, moderator's privilege and, and Darrell, I'm gonna throw it to you and I'm gonna ask you to be as brief as you can on a super complex question, which is uh, we have a gentleman who's a retired uh, black attorney and he says, he, he gave a, 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 I encourage you to read it afterward, um, uh, some personal anecdotes about seeing the difficulty of integrating schools. And that's really what we're talking about here is, is opening up opportunity for people to self-choose an integrative system um, more than what we have now. But none of us are naive enough to think that that wouldn't create societal pressures and challenges for the system. Um, having grown up in the inner city and you shared a little bit about your experiences going to different schools, can you talk a little bit about that? and? Do you have some insight to that question? I think that's a very perceptive question, actually. Yeah, so I didn't integrate my high school, but I integrated my high school. I, I was like the only black kid in my class for three of the four years I was in, in high school. And it is a uh, tremendous burden, which I didn't really realize until much later in life, to be like the black kid who goes and represents your people, right, to, to other people. Uh, it, it is, it's, a, it, it's a big deal and it's a lot to ask of, of any kid. That said, uh, two quick things. One is um, I'm, I support school school integration, but I think that the best way to do it is on a voluntary basis because voluntary communities are communities that are sticky and, and sort of centrally planned ones are, are harder to keep to, together. Um, and I think adopting this sort of set of policies is a better way to do this. The other thing I would just say is that the opposite is also true. The set of policies we have right now basically make sure that will never happen if you think that that is one strategy uh, uh, worth in embracing. And I also think that just a, a more choice forward environment is one that can let black kids be in a voluntary community with other black kids, which is also a more, um, a highly coveted uh, option that many families are interested in now. Yeah, I just, I just, I just want to throw in here. You know, I, I've often heard uh, people like Diane Ravitch say, "Well, you know, choice, school choice, it was designed for. You know, the reason we have people arguing for school choice is to maintain segregation or to resegregate the schools, um, or in the, that's why we need school assignment. We need residential assignment to avoid segregation, which is just mind-bogglingly naive because." If you abolished all charter schools tomorrow and you sent every single one of those kids back to their assigned schools, 
we would still have extremely segregated schools. So we're giving up all of this choice and we're not solving the problem that you're telling me that the system is meant to solve in any way. Like we're not solving it at all. So I, I, I don't, I just, it, it's, uh, I totally agree with Darrell. You, you, want, you want to encourage that over time, but it has to be voluntary. The government can't make those decisions for people. You know, I think it's interesting from a political perspective. We've we've had some internal polling that we've seen that has been absolutely fascinating and really does break people's paradigms in terms of who supports school choice and who doesn't. There is, I think, a little bit of a paternalistic narrative of this idea that somehow lower income and inner city families you know, aren't involved as much and don't care as much in their kids' education. And I'm thinking of one of the one of the private schools here in the DC area that 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 parents just try so hard to sacrificially send their kids to the Cornerstone Academy. You know, parents try really, really hard to get their kids in there. Um, and it, and it's, you know, it's because they're looking for ways to get their kids out of failing public schools that their kids have been assigned to. And so our polling data shows just a real uh, support for these policies among parents who are looking for there to be a change and looking for options and choice for them to make a difference for their kids' long-term lives. Well, listen, we are out of time and we at the Heritage Foundation, we like to keep our commitment to you guys to, to, to do this in exactly the time frame that, that we said that we would. We will go back and look at your questions very specifically and do our best to get back to you. Um, someone asked about follow-up material and we we will absolutely commit to you that there will be more material on this. And I just want to specifically thank Tim and Darrell for your willingness to come and uh, loan us your expertise for this last hour. And also, Lindsay, even though I get to work with you, I appreciate uh, your leadership in making this event happen and helping us to get the work that Tim and Darrell are doing out to a wider audience. So, and to our attendees, thank you so much um, for engaging with us on this issue, and I hope you will continue to do so. We will have a recording of this that we will be making available, and we hope that you all have enjoyed this content will help us get it to a larger audience as well. And so thank you all and have a great rest of your day.